Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The One Thing Podcast. We are your hosts, myself, Chris Dixon, and Nikki Miller. And we have a really interesting conversation for you today about a different kind of diversity than you typically hear about. Today, we have Dr. Tim Elmore on the podcast, and we're going to talk about generational diversity. I'm willing to bet that you've had an experience of working with someone, communicating with someone who's from a different generation than yourself, and it's created some interesting issues, challenges, maybe benefits for you when it comes to technology, communication, or perhaps leadership style. And we want to explore how you can think maybe differently about this generational gap instead of as a challenge, but as an opportunity or turning it into a competitive advantage. Because the reality is we have three distinct different generations that are converging in the workplace that have very different experiences. And it's important to acknowledge that. And as I said, turn it into an advantage or leverage for you to be more successful. Here at The One Thing, we believe that having clarity on your purpose, your values, your big goals helps you prioritize the things that matter most, the systems and models for you to say yes to the things that matter most so you can be productive to the goals that you have set for yourself, for your organization over time. If you like what you hear on this podcast and you want to learn more how you can bring the tools, the principles, these concepts of The One Thing to yourself, to your business, check out theonething.com slash coaching to learn more about how we can support you and yourself, your teams, your organization. Book a free coaching session with one of our certified coaches and trainers to learn more. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation where Nikki and I get to talk to Dr. Tim Elmore. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The One Thing Podcast. We're lucky to have Dr. Tim Elmore on with us today. And Tim is the founder and CEO of Growing Leaders, an Atlanta-based nonprofit organization encouraging and equipping emerging leaders. Tim's work stems from 20 years of service along the Dr. John C. Maxwell. And Dr. Elmore has published over 35 books in his latest, A New Kind of Diversity, which is focused on making the different generations of your team a competitive advantage. What a cool topic. Tim, thanks so much for being on. Could you share a little bit more about your background for the audience and what brought you here today? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for launching a conversation together. I'm, I'm going to enjoy being with you. Um, well, my career started first and foremost a long time ago, so maybe that helps people understand who you're talking to. I, uh, I started my career in 1979, so that was the last century. Um, and the first 20 years of my career, I spent with Dr. Maxwell. So John Maxwell put his fingerprints all over my career. And I'm so grateful. My gosh, you can only imagine, can't you? Just right out of college when you're still moldable, I learned how to lead well and what to avoid and what to do and what not to do. Um, and then after 20 years, I launched this nonprofit called Growing Leaders. And really what I, what I wanted to do was to take what John was doing with corporate leaders and other leaders that were grownups and offer it to the emerging generation who are just launching their lives and careers and maybe get to them before they wrecked a business or ruined a marriage or whatever. So um, Growing Leaders is all about the emerging generation. Uh, and we're wanting to, um, and by the way, my pedagogy or our style of training leaders was different than John. John has some great leadership principles. We all know that. I decided we needed to deliver the content differently. So we teach with images, conversations, and experiences. So anyway, that's a skinny on 
what we do and who we do it with. And we work now with well over 10,000 companies, universities, sports teams, and, and high schools to uh, prepare that next gen to be ready to go. Wow. Uh, can I ask a quick, I'm going to ask a quick question, Chris, if you don't mind if I jump in. I, I, I love this topic in general, and I'm, I'm partial to it. I, I work very closely with a nonprofit, uh, KWKC, where we empower young adults uh, that usually are, are questing to be entrepreneurs with the tools and systems and training and growth uh, in order to, to you know, succeed to their highest potential. So it sort of sounds like within the same vein. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. I, and I don't think I knew until I got a little bit later in, in sort of the experience of being in that world that young adults very much do need to be trained differently. And I heard you say, we, we sort of approach that differently. I've taken some of these concepts, but approach it differently through, through images, through sounds like interactive training. Like what's the thing yeah. that you've really seen there uh, that that's the biggest difference between tra- training older adults and and sort of the younger next generation coming up. I would. That's a great question, by the way, Nikki. I think everybody enjoys whatever their age, the way we deliver, or the way anybody that does what we do does. But I think older generations are fine with lecture, drill, memorization, and test, or something like that. Here's a speech. Listen to it for an hour. Jot down a few notes, and then let's go have lunch. I think the emerging generation. Um, we use an acronym called PROVE, P-R-O-V-E. We think you need to start with a problem, not a curriculum. So as much as I believe in good content and curriculum, I think young people want to solve a real problem. You know, not a hypothetical one, a real problem that they care about. Then any content you got is answering a question or solving a pain point, not some theory they got. So the letter P improve is problem. The letter R is relationship. I think it's so important to establish relationship early on as you interact and as you teach or, or consult or coach. Um, we hear from too many young adults in focus groups. Yeah, she thinks she knows me, but she doesn't. He thinks he knows me, but he doesn't. So I think we're just, let's just, I'm going to say we, the older generation just want to forge ahead and teach them what we know. And I think that we don't stop to build a bridge or relationship first. The letter O is ownership. I think when we work with young people, we learn they need to own this learning. Uh, Young people support what they help create. And I think it's oftentimes we've pushed on them some great nugget we've got, but it's really prescriptive. We own it, not them. Uh, we've been very prescriptive in how we've taught middle school, high school, college, and grad students, and even young employees. So we try to be descriptive in our leadership, not prescriptive. Let's choose a goal together and describe together how we're going to reach it. The letter V is visuals. I think these young people are screenagers, and, they, and they've been visually um, connected through Instagram and TikTok and everything else. And I think we need to leverage images and visuals better. And then the letter E experiential. We've got to be experiential in our training to where it feels like an environment and an experience has been used. So let me give you a quick example. I know I'm taking a long time to answer that question, but um, we have worked for years and years and years with the University of Alabama Athletics. So they take their sports very seriously in Tuscaloosa. So one of the exercises we use um, is right to one side uh, side of the huge football stadium there at Alabama, which holds 101,000 people, there's an old graveyard, like a 19th century graveyard. It's got a big fence around it and all the tombstones are old and gray. Um, We'll march over a few dozen student athletes 
and open up that fence and walk into the graveyard. And it's kind of freaky. It's daytime, so it's not weird. But, you know, you're going, I'm in a graveyard right now. But we'll say, we want you to pair up and two by two walk around this graveyard for the next 20 minutes and just read the tombstones. Read the names and the epitaphs and the dates. And just and don't say a word, just utter silence, just read. Well, it is weird for them, but they start doing it. 20 minutes later, they come back and we have the richest conversation. But here's how it goes. I'll say, okay, what'd you just see? What'd you just read? And it's quiet for a minute because it's weird, but somebody eventually raises their hand and goes, well, we read that some people lived a long time and some people not so much. Some people had really, really nice things said about them. Other people, not so much. And then we begin to talk about their sentence. Many years from now, when all you get is a sentence, what's it going to be? That you were a great athlete? Is that it? Or that you made straight A's? Is that it? Or is it something better and greater? And you know what? It almost always gets emotional at that point. Because one of them is thinking about a grandmother that just died. Somebody's thinking about, I've really screwed up my life so far at 22. And we begin to talk about what their life was about, the big why. Now, to me, it's far better to have it there in a graveyard than to in a lecture hall. Okay, let's talk about your purpose statement now. You see what I'm saying. So that's an experience. It's very simple but it's an experience. So anyway, Nikki, that was a long answer to a short question. That was but beautiful. Maybe, Thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah. I, t- just, I took copious notes for my own for my own self in the future, so oh, I appreciate you sharing that with me. That's incredible. Yeah, it sure helps. I, I want a lecture, but they don't want a lecture. They want a picture. <laughs> so we're trying to change up our ways. So following the... This, the proof model then like what's the what's the problem that we face in the in the workplace today and and the reason why it's so important to focus on these generational differences yeah it's a great question one of the reasons i think we do is because i think the generational diversity is just as real as ethnic diversity gender diversity income diversity you're both nodding at me right now but I don't think we treat it that way. I think it's like an elephant in the room. We all know it's there, but we don't know how to talk about it. So we just avoid it. Or we get the water cooler with a fellow baby boomer and we can, ah, millidiots. That's the term I've just learned, millidiots. I'm going, no, you can't <laughs> say that. <laughs> so, I think anyway. you're, you're talking to two millennials right now, I think. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And you would agree, we can't use that word. So, um, we really try to help organizations build bridges rather than walls. There's something to be gained from every generation, but we build walls instead of bridges naturally when someone's different. So that would be my big answer. Um, I always try to use when I'm doing this kind of training with an organization, I say, let's imagine we hopped on a plane, flew across the world to another country. When we stepped off that plane, would it not be true? We'd be psyched up to work harder at connecting with those people in China or France, because we know they have different customs here. They speak a different language here. They have different values here. Bingo. I think when I talk to somebody from Gen Z, different customs, different language, different. And if I don't know that, I won't work hard like I need to work hard. So that's really what this book is about. We've got to work hard and build those bridges. Um, So that's awesome. 
Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. walk us through when you're going when when you're when you're having these conversations how how are you teaching people and it's i know it's a little bit of an insight into the book itself but how are you teaching people to have those conversations because i think every every one of us in our own evolution goes through you know when when we're young we're like well i'll never be like that i'll never say well back in my day and then i find (laughs) myself saying well back in my when i was a teenager right And, and we sort of all go through that so how are you teaching them how to bridge that gap what's the strategies well, there's there's a number of strategies that I try to include in the book because it's not just one magic wand, obviously. But step one is we've got to stop stereotyping. Don't all of us do that? None of us want that done to us, but we do it. Stereotyping, in my mind, is a mental shortcut that's not helpful. You know, we, we don't want to think hard and long. We hear one story about a Gen Z slacker that's a fragile snowflake, right? And we go, oh yeah, they're all like that. And you know that's not true. So stop stereotyping. We need to go deep, not give up. Um, But then I would say, I try to teach in the book, here's what we think we see with Gen Z, with millennials, with Gen X, with baby boomers, with the silence or the builder generation. And then I start revealing the great contribution they each have. And by the way, there's something different in each generation that they bring that others don't. So I did not put this metaphor in the book, Nikki, but I want to give it to you now, fresh off the press, okay? When I read a really good book, I'm reading Seth Godin's really good book right now. I highlight with five different highlighters, different colors. So yellow is important things I want to remember. Orange is great quotes. Blue is great stories. I just have different things I want to find quickly later. I think every generation in a workplace is like a different color highlighter. The millennials highlight something differently than the boomers do, but we need that. And the boomers, they, w- they didn't want us to lose that thing we learned back in 1971. So let's remember that. But isn't that cool? It's like, there's different highlighters here in this book, our story of this company. And if I'd let every color be something, instead of saying, well, the only thing we want to highlight is what the baby boomers are saying. That's ridiculous. So um, yeah, that would be that would be what I would say. I'm getting a little passionate here. I'm so sorry, but please don't uh, ever be sorry about that. You love what you do. That's incredible. Yeah, I do. I do. But I feel like if we could leverage the five generations that are still working together instead of be off put by them, we could have something that's a, it's, it's a completely a differentiator for our company or our so organization. The five, the five yeah. generations are, are the builders, boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, and Gen Z, correct? Correct. That's right. And by the way, I have an, I have an appendix in the book, um, Chris, 
it's it's the alpha gen. So the youngest children that we're beginning to measure now are they're they're in elementary school and younger, but they're going to be a little different. You can imagine if you're six years old right now, half your life has been a pandemic. So your social and interpersonal skills didn't get developed with masks on and quarantines. So anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted, but um, I try to cover. No, no, that's good. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. And then within Gen Y, I believe, and you you make this distinction in the book that there's a bit of a split there too at the advent of technology and kind of an IY, if I remember. Yes, good memory. So I think the millennials can be divided up into into two parts. The 80s kids are different than the 90s kids. Uh, and we see it now as as young adults. My daughter, Bethany, was born in the 80s. My son, Jonathan, born in the 90s. They're different. And it's not just personality. The, what was released in their early years that shaped them like wet cement has solidified now. And they're different as a 35-year-old and a, and a young, you know, young guy that's, that's five years younger. Than, than, than her. So there is micro generations. There are micro generations, even within generations. And that's just going to speed up as time goes on and things happen faster. You know, maybe there'll be micro generations, three of them within a, a segment, you know, that we just need to know and be understanding of. One of the things that I really loved in the book that you, that you did mention, the, the sort of evolution of technology within these generations as well, and and it's changing so fast that the, and and not going anywhere by the way that this is just going to continue to be the the you know the theme across uh, across generations and probably even faster like I, I don't know about you and yet I see it, you uh, you just sort of split up the millennials uh, by way of technology and I foresee that happening even with even more frequency in the younger generations because it is just evolving so fast. And how do you see that now in, when you're dealing in the workplace? Because I think that that's one of the big gaps that I see in, in my business is that there is a generational gap in technology, which can be really frustrating and hard to talk about. How do you sort of bridge that conversation? Well, I want to share a story that I put in the book um, that I just love telling because it illustrates the answer to your question. Um, a couple of years ago, Tony was a student at Ohio University. And he was working at a paint store part-time. And it was a major retail brand paint store that everybody would recognize. While he happened to be there at this job, he started a TikTok account. And he was taking, you know, clips of him mixing paints and it was really cool. And, and, and he posted them on TikTok. Well, Tony's account went viral. When he had 1.8 million followers and like 37 million views, he thought, oh my gosh, we could monetize this. You know, this could be something we could use for marketing. So Tony, as a young, like 20, 21-year-old young man, put a slide deck together and he asked to meet with the executives because he said, I got an idea that we could use. Well, Tony did not get one person interested in hearing him. He did get one set of eyeballs to look at a slide deck. Tony did get something he didn't expect. Tony got fired. Yeah. They fired him because they thought he was probably distracting to the customers. He probably was stealing the paint, probably was, you know, doing this on company time. You know, all the suspicions we have of the younger generations. So Tony gets fired. So get this. Tony leaves the paint store, graduates, moves down to Florida, now has over 2 million followers and has started his own paint store. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'll be the first to admit there's probably lots about the story we don't understand. But there's one thing I do think we do understand. 
that company lost out on a couple of million followers they could have marketed to that now they can't because they had their way of thinking. TikTok, that's just a bunch of goofball kids, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I'm thinking, first and foremost, leaders need to stop just telling and start listening and find a way to do reverse mentoring. And and, uh, that's what they could have and should have done, in my opinion. Now, I'd give another illustration, Nikki, to your question. I think there's a lot of young, recent graduates from college that have never had a full-time job. They just work on academics or whatever. And now they need to be onboarded with understanding HR people that go, I need to coach you. We work eight hours a day here, you know, or something like that. I had an HR person say that they were uh, interviewing a young recent graduate. And he said, when spring break? And she's going, oh, I'm so sorry. we work all year round here. You know, we don't <laughs> no, have spring a spring break here. I know. I know. It's like, well, that he's not dumb. He just yeah, had he no just idea. We don't continue spring break. So anyway, I think we have much to learn from both of us. And so I think we need to get the timeless principles that the older generations give us and the timely principles that we learn from the younger generation and put them together. And that's what I try to offer in this book as a game plan to learn and listen and teach and tell from both sides. Yeah. It seems like there's there's not only the need to create connections in the workplace. So there's there's value and purpose and understanding yeah. some of the the needs, wants, desires, characteristics of a different yeah. generation. But there's also a lot to learn about them as a customer as well. And the example you mentioned about was it Tim? Not Tim. What was the guy's Tony. name? Uh, the paint exactly. Tony. Sorry, uh, Tony. And so there's there's kind of two sides to that that are really yeah. valuable. Yeah, no doubt about it. And here's something that I touch on in the book that I wish I would have built out two chapters on. Um, Dr. Raymond Cattell, back 50 years ago in the early 70s, released some brain research that he had done way before we ever had fMRIs. He discovered that in the first 40 years of your life, you experience what neuroscientists call um, fluid intelligence. Your brain is very good at adapting, innovating, creating. That's what young people do. In the second 40 years of our life, we experience mostly what he calls crystallized intelligence. So fluid intelligence, crystallized intelligence. When you experience crystallized intelligence, now you're majoring in summarizing things you've learned, clarifying, you know, those kinds of things. That's why sometimes old professors at universities get the best marks because they're so good at just knowing what the bottom line is and saying, here's the stuff you need to know. Well, I'm just thinking, what if a company could get all the fluid intelligence they've got and the crystallized intelligence they've got and merge it together? Oh my gosh. But we failed to do that because we have these we, they, we, they, millidiots over there, you know, or whatever. And I'm thinking, that's nonsense. And yet clear back, dating back to Socrates, we've always felt like the young generations are never going to make it. They're disrespectful. They don't get it. And yet we've always somehow come through and we made it, but, you know, we've got to find a way to say, stop it. Let's, let's get together early on and get this right. I almost see it as you, I I think every great company has the people who ideate, like we would call them the visionaries, right? And then the people who implement and you need both. One is not better than the other. They're both so necessary. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. Yeah. I try to 
share stories about that. I, I think about, um, I think it's in the last chapter. I talk about Angela Arendt, who was asked to fly to London from the USA and become the CEO of Burberry Coats, this high-end luxury trench coat. Um, but when she went there, the brand was in decline and her job was to resurrect this brand. Well, you know what the first thing she did was she got with all her 20-somethings. So she's in her 50s, you know, she gets with her 20-somethings and say, you guys need to tell us, how do we reach you? How do we reach you, you know? And she took conventional wisdom and turned it on its ear. Instead of the typical thing of, okay, we're going to meet with all the old executives, come up with ideas and tell the interns to do them. We meet with the interns, get ideas from them, and we use our budget, our networks, our Rolodex, and we implement what they told us to do. Now I'm oversimplifying, but what a brilliant idea. Well, the company grew and grew and grew and grew because they stopped just reaching, pardon me for being so blunt, old ladies that would wear the trench coat and reach young ladies and and gentlemen who were 25 and 24. And now they're buying Burberry. Yeah, they are because they started something called the art of the trench where they could post pictures of themselves on the the website. (laughs) Well, we love to post pictures of ourselves, you know, so I'm having fun with you, but they knew how to reach their own generation. So anyway, there's, it's loaded with stories like that that go, oh my gosh, that's true. We need to leverage these young, fluid intelligence people that, you know, that are with us right now. I mean, one of the things that I, I think came through so clearly in the book, and, it's, and, I, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's probably the educator in you is that you're just asking the question. I always laugh in business when when people sit in this closed door room and say, well, what does our customer want? And I say, has anyone just considered asking them? Like, just ask them. They will tell you what they want. And it's so clear in so many of the stories that you share and the research that you did that you are, in fact, asking people what they want. So is that something that came naturally to you? Is it something that you learned over time? And what have you learned in doing that? Well, Nikki, you're you're a prophet. Yes, I I, I did have to learn it. And because I tell you what, you can tell already, I love to teach. I do. And um, I even learned with my own children, they wanted a father, not a teacher at the dinner table. So I reserved my lectures, you know, that sort of thing. But um, I think just hosting focus groups and then finding what they were saying was not what I assumed. You know, that's always a, just a brilliant way to learn. And you don't tell them, you don't dare tell them what you were assuming was this, that they were feeling entitled or whatever. They were actually feeling something else. But so that would be one response to your question. But I, but I also feel like, um, I'll, I'll give you one of the biggest takeaways that I just added to the book in the second printing. Um, when I asked representatives from each of the five generations that are at work, what do you want from other generations when they talk to you? Okay, so let me repeat that. I talked to Gen Z, I talked to millennials, Gen X, boomers, builders. What do you want from other generations when you interact with them? You can imagine I got a whole bunch of answers from all five generations. But you know something? There were three answers that came up in all five. And here they are. Number one, I want humility from you. Meaning when you talk to me as an old baby boomer or when I talk to you, you know, as a young Gen Zer, I wish you would approach me with humility, which basically says, I know I've got more to learn. Secondly, I wish you would approach me with respect, 
Now, I know that's an old-fashioned word. Thank you, Aretha Franklin. But when you approach me with respect, (laughs) that means you're beginning with belief, not suspicion. You don't say, you got to earn my respect, Sonny. You go, I'm going to begin with respect and belief in you. And you know what I found as the 63-year-old man? They return it right back. When I begin with belief, I'm getting choked up now. I'm thinking about a 22-year-old I've got on my team. When I began with respect for him right out of college, man, he respects me so much. I don't think it's because I'm great. I think it's because I, I began like a dad who loved him, you know, and, and wanted to show respect. But then the third one I loved was curiosity. All of these generations said, would you approach me with a curious spirit thinking, oh my gosh, what can I learn from a 22-year-old or a 25-year-old? So I'm thinking that would be huge if every organization listening right now had all three of those in all five generations. It could be magic. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's like not the norm, right? When you're, both sides are unfortunately somewhat trained or normalized to like defensive mechanism first. And so when you when you do lower your guards and come out of the gate curious or seeking to understand that person and their their needs, then it it's quick to have the wall come down. So what it's a great so piece true. of advice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the the dis- distribution of um generations across the workforce right now, millennials I believe hold the greatest share if that's right that's true yeah okay and then it in that speaking from as a millennial what (laughs) at the risk of being somewhat stereotyped just kidding but what are some of the the common characteristics or needs of of that group that someone if they understood more of could be better equipped to work with or around that that particular group yeah it's a great question so they do hold in all industries across the board on the average more than half are millennials now. So the millennials are bigger than the baby boomers who were called boomers because there was a boom of babies between 1946 and 1964. So there's some 80 million millennials alive right now uh, in in the US, not to mention the rest of the world. So um, whenever I talk to an employer that goes, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can take those millennials. I go, well, they're taking over, sir. You know, you need to know that. Um, It's happening. Yeah, it's happening, like it or not. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so here's what I would say that may feel like a stereotype, but it's actually data. The millennials generally bring them with them more energy than the two generations above them or three generations above them, more idealism. So some would be off put by that and say, oh, you're too idealistic. Well, maybe, but we need that in our companies. We need ideals to reach for toward, not jaded cynicism. So, um, and then generally speaking, millennials bring a sense of confidence. And I think older generations think it's cocky or arrogant or overconfidence, but I think you guys could maybe could speak for your own generation better than I can. But I think there's a sense of confidence that I think successful companies desperately need. Now, do we need a contrarian point of view as well? Of course we do. We need an extra to go, wait a minute, we tried that. You know, here's what we learned. Well, let's see what we learned so we can go come back at it better this time around. So that's, I don't know if that's a helpful answer, uh, Chris, to this, but I feel like I love, we have a ton of millennials that are at Growing Leaders, the organization that I lead. 
And uh, I love the energy they bring. I, I say, bring it on, baby. We need, I need that. I'm about ready to go to a wheelchair right now, you know? So I yeah. love <laughs> So Tim, the, the energy and the confidence being the, the bigger drivers for, for, for my, my generation, uh, I can relate to that. And the important thing there is recognize it, use it uh, as a way to, to strategically benefit yourself, the team organization, but also be aware of the other side of that, which is, you probably need some checks and balances. You can plow forward a little too quickly. So make sure you got somebody in the room with a black hat that can say, "Oh, hang on a second. <laughs> you know, don't don't go full breaks, but let's just check in here and, and make right. sure we're headed the right direction." Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's something kind of cool. Um, Generation Z are the new kids on the block in the workplace. Um, I know you guys love this. I'm going to give you some data that you're going to love. Um, when public high school students were surveyed across our nation, 70% said, I want to be an entrepreneur. Not seven, 70. Now, will they all succeed? Probably, probably not. Neither did mine. But that's a, that tells me something about their spirit. I don't want to join something. I want to start something. So how could we begin gig economies within the corporation that we currently have where they're launching a new product or project or something? And, and they feel like an entrepreneur, but with a safety net of a great, well-funded organization. I think we need to rethink that. Mm. Well, I think that almost goes back to your approved model of giving them ownership yes. over something, right? That's right. Because, oh, I mean, absolutely. We, I, I certainly have that conversation in my ecosystem. A lot of people, I'm, you know, I come from the real estate world where everybody gets into that world because they want to be an entrepreneur. And then, and, and then we show them a path to maybe, maybe being an entrepreneur is the right path for you. You can still own this and build this inside the company. How, how are you teaching companies to facilitate that? Because that can be a little bit scary when you have you know, a young person coming in who doesn't really have the business wherewithal or knowledge yet and saying, yeah, totally, you can, you can totally own this and build it yourself and you know, uh, go, go, go forth and see what you can do. Uh, so that I'm sure there's got to be checks and balances, but how are you, how are you coaching people to do that? So here's the typical path that I offer as a suggestion. Um, I think you do need a crew of workers, whatever the industry is, who continue on building the products and services you need. So you don't just scrap everything from yesterday. Let's, let's start over. But I do say you need to set aside a special entrepreneurial zone that might be all four generations, but certainly some young entrepreneurial spirits are on that team. You set aside funds budget for the untold discoveries they will make. So you've got this already in action thing going, but you've got this special zone that's coming up. And I think what you do is you start with both groups together and you answer these three questions. When you look at all the products and services you offer, you ask what needs a facelift, what needs an overhaul, and what needs a funeral? What needs a facelift? So it's good, but it just needs to be updated to 2023. What needs an overhaul? That was a great idea back in 2000, but we need to overhaul that thing. Good, good problem to solve, but not the right product anymore. And then here's the hardest. What do we need to give a funeral to that we came up with back in 1992, but it's now 30 years old and we need to kill that thing and come up with something new. So can I get really personal? I've written a number of books all of, well, not all, but some of which we sell at Growing Leaders. Um, I have to leave the room when we do what's, what needs a funeral because I know they're about to kill one of my books. 
<laughs> that's that's funny. <laughs> it's like losing a baby, you know. So I go. I need to leave the room. I trust you guys, but please, I cannot watch this. You know this this funeral. So, um, but I know that's what we need to do. I know for us to move forward, you you have to. So those three questions are really key. Then that special entrepreneurial zone I just talked about. They go to all three. How do we kill? How do we overhaul? How do we facelift? And it just becomes an energizing exercise for everybody. And then you, of course, report to the leadership team. Here's what we came up with. Very cool. You talked about uh, reverse mentorship earlier, and I, I think there's a lot in there. And I know that you, you talk about this in the book a fair amount, and there's a lot of value in that process, both mentorship and reverse mentorship and this kind of infinity loop yeah. of shared value. So what can you share a little bit more about what it means to you in reverse mentorship and yeah. how a company could think about being intentional about creating this? Yes. Thank you for asking, Chris. I love this idea. We do practice it at Growing Leaders. So um, first of all, let me define it for anybody that might go, I'm not quite sure I know what that means. Uh, reverse le- mentoring was actually something that I think was launched by Jack Welch at, G- at GE, you know, back in the 90s. But reverse mentoring is when you have a seasoned veteran of the company who's been around for 30, 35 years and a young rookie coming into the company, maybe right out of school, and you put them together. And the first thing they do is swap stories. You can always find something common when you swap stories. But then you both begin to share out of your experience. So clearly the person that's been around for decades is sharing, here's how to succeed at this company. I know how to do that. And the young person needs that. But then you swap hats and the mentor becomes the mentee and the mentee becomes the mentor. And maybe they're sharing out of their overflow of here's how to monetize TikTok. Think of Tony, okay? Or here's something I learned with the latest app I just got on my phone or whatever. I'm I'm stereotyping, but you get the idea. But both have something to learn. And I think because change happens so rapidly, we're gonna need to learn something at 60 years old from that 25-year-old and vice versa. There's the timely and the timeless that we need to learn. So that's a definition. Now, here's how I personally practice it at Growing Leaders. I mentioned that 22-year-old we have at Growing Leaders that I love as like a son. His name is Cam, went to University of Michigan. He's smarter than me. And um, I immediately say, every time we meet, I'm going to be a mentor and a mentee in this meeting. And I learn something and teach something every single time we meet. And he does too. I meet with, now, Cam is 40 years younger than me. I hate to even admit that. Andrew is 30 years younger than me. So he's 32, 33 years old. Okay, he's a millennial. I love that guy. And we learn and we teach. We learn and we teach. So, and so 30 years younger, 40 years younger, pretty soon, if I'm still around, I'll meet somebody 45 years younger than me. And I go, I'm, a, you know, I need to learn, you know, how to use threads, you know, or whatever. I don't know. So, anyway, um, <laughs> that's a bad answer, but that's how I practice it. There's men I'm learning from. Um, and I just love, but see, you know what has to change more in me than them. I've got to be willing to learn and not say, I know everything. I've been around for all this time. I need to go probably because I've been around all this time. I need to unlearn and relearn. And that's my job. At the, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much power in that statement you made there. And it's, I, I draw a lot of parallels between mentorship and coaching. And yeah. there's differences for yeah. sure. But there's a lot, like a Venn diagram. There's a lot of shared space in there. Yeah. And I, 
as a coach myself, I have to remind myself all the time of how much value you get the other direction too. And it's, it's, it's one of those things that you have to be willing to receive it or you could, it'll go right over your head. Yes. So going into those conversations, like you said, as a, a mentor or a mentee, just being ready to reciprocate or to, you know, to learn something, but otherwise you can be close-minded and miss the opportunity. Chris, you're spot on. Can I volley back real quick on that? I think what you just said in summary is so good. So my own two adult children are great examples of this teaching learning thing. So the assignment that I have given myself with my two young adult kids, I want to speak to them as if I believe I'm right, but I want to listen to them as if I believe I'm wrong. That's been a game changer. Well, you can imagine they've got this dad that's an author, you know, who probably researched something that I, you know, but I'm listening to my daughter as if she's right. And I'm not. I, I feel like it's changed our relationship. And uh, she's about to get married at 35, and I'm so excited. <laughs> but, um, yeah, thank you. It's, I'm excited for her. Um, but my point is, it's it's just been so good to be a dad, but be a learner uh, in her own home. Yeah. Something that's coming through so clearly, Tim, from you, not not only in your care. I mean, you don't get emotional like this about your people and about your family. And you really care about what you do. And, and the biggest thing that I'm hearing is you care about how you make them feel. I'm getting emotional listening to you because I, I feel the care in, in your conversation. And I think that's so important when, when we're trying to bridge a gap anywhere, whether it's between generations or, or people or in companies or ideas, whatever it is, you have to make the other side feel safe to be who they are. In our world, we call it, you know, a sense of psychological safety when we're doing training where they feel safe to be themselves, to ask questions, to actually share how they feel. How do you teach people how to do that? Because I do think it's something you have to learn how to do. We always come into conversations with our preconceived notions and our, you know, sort of preconceived background and vision of what we want it to look like, et cetera. How do you coach people to do that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I don't know if I've got a great answer, but I have my answer that I use. So That's I'm a great answer, Tim. What I've proven. <laughs> So um, I am such a natural teacher. I want to teach my way through every problem. I need to. I need to push pause on that. So you know how we've always used. We've always heard this term. This is the leg you got to stand. You got to stand on, and it's a leg. A L E G. So I use this little acronym on myself. So A is ask questions. Don't start with telling or teaching something. Ask questions first. And when I ask questions, that tends to make a person feel important, okay? The letter L is listen well. So once I ask, I better, I owe it to him to, to listen. I think the problem with baby boomers, we ask questions because we're supposed to, and then we wait for our turn to say something. So listen well makes them feel heard. You know, I heard David Augsburger once say, he's a psychologist, this is powerful. He said, being heard is so close to feeling loved that for the average person, it's almost indistinguishable. Isn't that powerful? It's almost indistinguishable. So ask questions, they feel uh, important. Listen well, they feel heard. Letter E is empathize. And when I empathize, I step into their shoes and they feel understood. 
Well, you know what happens, Nikki, when you feel understood by an old guy or a young guy, whatever, you just go, oh my gosh, I like this person. You know. <laughs> so then the letter G is guide. Now I've earned my right to guide them because they feel, oh my gosh, he thinks I'm important. Oh my gosh, he just listened to me. Oh my gosh, he feels, he, he understands what I'm saying. Now I can say, you know what I would do in your... Oh my gosh, let me write it down, you know, because you just traveled to this place of guidance. So that just is simple, but that seems to work for me when I practice it. Um, yeah, it works with almost anybody I'm talking to. And it also makes if you do it with a sense of authenticity too, right? The sorry, Nikki, if you do it with this sense of authenticity and you really truly aim to create that, yeah. not just check the box, right? You, yeah. it'll, it'll come through in your communication. Yeah, I sure hope so. That's what I want. I want authenticity. And by the way, if you, if you read the book, you know, there's one chapter, I share six images. We teach leadership with images that start those kind of conversations. And one of them is guard dogs and guide dogs. So I love this image. We've given canines lots of jobs over the years as human beings, okay? Two of the most common jobs are the guard dog and the guide dog, but their jobs are really different. Clearly, the guard dog's job is to protect. We put them in some pen and they bark at intruders and growl and suspicion and, you know, sniff out trouble. They're there to protect. Guide dog's job, well, guide dogs are usually paired up with someone that doesn't see well. They're seeing impaired, right? And they go first and they lead the way because that person maybe doesn't see well, okay? Here's the deal. The guard dog's job is to protect. The guide dog's job is to partner. So this is all about vulnerability and authenticity. Whenever I see a blind person that has a seeing eye dog, a, a guide dog, that, think about it. And by the way, apply this to your leadership. The guide dog leader goes first. They take initiative. They're the vulnerable ones, um, and, and, and that's exactly what we need to be. So belonging actually works from the outside in. When leaders tip their hand to be a, and they're a guide dog, that means they get vulnerable first, they initiate, they're transparent, people lean in. The trouble is, when I'm on a team, I tend, when things are anxious, to, to hold my cards close to the chest. I'm a guard dog, I'm gonna guard the budget, I'm gonna guard my department, I'm gonna guard my stuff. And what people really need is for us to go, you know what, this is scary, isn't it? Let's, let's, let's be vulnerable here and I'm gonna start, you know, that sort of thing. It's revolutionary. So these images are meant to be conversation starters where we really do what's needed, not what we wanna do when we're in tough situations as a leader. And I think this conversation is so important, Tim, because I, I think when we're when we're initiating these conversations, we always want the other side to open up, right? That's the goal. We want them to tell us whatever it is that we're looking for, not realizing that in order to facilitate that, we have to start. We have to literally lead the conversation and and guide the conversation. And I see so often people get challenged in communication for that exact reason. Both sides are just having a standoff, waiting for the other side to open up, and no one's willing to go first which is what releases the other side to, to being more open. It's so true. Yeah. It's the neuroscience behind this simple, simple metaphor is absolutely revolutionary. And I think what makes it revolutionary is you're right. We default to the wrong thing, you know? And yet, boy, when a leader, let's say a person in authority and power gets vulnerable and is human, oh my gosh, Everybody feels safe enough, psychologically safe. You even said it 
to, to go, oh my gosh, I'm scared too. Well, now we've got a, a playing field that's level. Now let's do this together and let's trust each other rather than distrust uh, each other. Yeah. Hmm. Do you see there being multiple hats to wear and knowing sometimes when, you know, to strategically, it sounds, sounds too uh, rigid, but to wear that hat, be vulnerable, like create those that trust and that psychological safety, but you can't stay there all the time. Uh, sometimes you got to put the other hat on and create some boundaries and, and be a, a, a guard leader, I guess is a better way to say it. I'm glad you brought that up, Chris. There are times the leader needs to be a guard dog for sure. You know, we're at the end of the fiscal year. There's some budget to protect right now. And we're not going to spend recklessly. I'm so sorry, Nancy. We're not going to do that, you know. But um, so I do feel like you're right. You need to read the room before you lead the room. And there are times to be guard dog and times to be guard dog. I tell you what, I just taught this image to the Georgia Tech football team. And you know what I ended up saying? You be a guard dog on Saturday afternoons against the opposing team. <laughs> but you be a guide dog with each other, teammates. Um, so you're right. You're absolutely right. You got to read before you lead. Um, and, and that's, that's huge, but you know what? Here's another one. Another one of the images is chess or checkers. So chess and checkers both have the same game board. So you could be tempted to think, huh, must be the same game. That is not true. When I play the game of checkers, all my pieces look alike. They move alike. So I treat them all alike. When I play the game of chess, I have to know what each piece can do to, to win that game. Bishops and rooks and pawns and kings and queens. Here's what I think. I think mediocre leaders play checkers with their people. They treat them all alike and they get average performance. Great leaders play chess in the relationships on that team. And they connect with others at the uniqueness of their strength, their personality, and their generation. And those people flourish under the leadership. Now, I think what I just told you, you already knew. You just didn't put it in that term, chess and checkers. But you know what? We don't do this well. We think that treat everybody exactly alike is the key. No, it isn't. That's the worst advice I could give you. Find out who they are. But you know what? Playing chess is harder than playing checkers. And playing chess takes longer than playing checkers. So we don't do it. But um, that's a conversation starter. I got to, how do I play chess with my direct reports? Um, instead of checkers, which I thought was what I got trained to do with my NBA program. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the surface, it seems like it's you, you as a leader, if you're not aware of it, you have a tendency to want to optimize your processes and be more efficient. And if you try to translate that to relationships, you end up without being aware of it playing check checkers instead of playing the long game, which on the surface seems like it could be less efficient. However, it is a much better long-term play, which is to get to know your people, understand their strengths and weaknesses, all the things you just mentioned to differentiate between chess and checkers. Yeah, you're spot on. Chris, you just summarized that chapter so well. If I play the long game, it may not be that our stakeholders win tomorrow, but everybody wins in the long run. <laughs> we're, we're this long-standing company that doesn't go away. It's like Jim Collins taught us, built to last. You know, remember that great book? Um, so that's really, this book is a complimentary to Built the Last. You, you're going to last long if you do these these things. Yeah. Tim, this is such an awesome conversation, man. If, if the listeners, they want to know more, they want to get your book, they want to find you, where can they find you? Where can they get your stuff? Sure, yeah. Well, the book we've just talked about, thank you for asking, is called A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage. So there is a website that you can get a, a good Amazon price. 
but it's simply called a new, I'm sorry, newdiversitybook.com, newdiversitybook.com. If you go to that site, um, you can take a free assessment to see how well you do with those Gen Zers, those boomers, those Xers, those millennials. And it's a fun way to get a report back for free and go, ooh, I'm pretty good with millennials, not so good with Gen Z. So the assessment's there and of course the book is there, but um, you can also go on Amazon. But um, growingleaders.com is my organization's website, growingleaders.com, and then timomar.com if you want to book an event, um, that's where, where to go. But thanks, Chris, for asking that question. I hope this has been helpful. I've had fun talking to you guys. Uh, I always love talking about this subject and hopefully gleaning from each other along the way. Likewise, Tim. I have I have three pages of notes from today, so thank you. And also, Tony would be very sad that you didn't mention a TikTok channel that people can find you on. Oh, I should have. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> well, Tony is teaching me. You know, he's... <laughs> And Zier that knows more than I do about TikTok. So I'm going to hand it to him. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's close it out with, if you could have our listeners just take away one thing from our conversation today, Tim, what would you have them take away? You know, if it's just one thing, it might be that reverse mentoring thing. Find somebody from a very distinctly different generation and say, let's go get coffee. I want to learn. Uh, I have a feeling you'll mm. both learn from each other. So that would be it. Um, but, but the, the other thing, if I could share too, would be look at all your generations on your team as different color highlighters that are highlighting a part of our story we don't want to miss. Um, so yeah, those would be the, those would be the two. Yeah. Awesome. Great takeaway. Tim, Nikki, guys, thanks so much. Good conversation. Thanks for being here again and we'll see you next time. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening to the One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week.